Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here, you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your asses belong to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, The Shawshank Redemption. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the hedge maze at the Overlook Hotel, we're fucking lost. We've been trying to get to the Shawshank State Prison for a week now. We have gone down this row already. No, we haven't. That one was to the left. I'm cold. Oh, for fuck's sake, you need just to shut the fuck up. Let's just try going down this one. Haven't we done this one already? I don't know. I'm hungry. Oh, for fuck's sake, I swear to God. In the meantime, my name is Don, and to my right, we have the comic book guy. This is John. 40 years, I've been asking permission to piss. I can't squeeze a drop without say-so. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. I must admit that the first time I laid my eyes on John and Don, I didn't think much of either of them. (laughs) Well, thanks, buddy. I don't know how to take that. I didn't think much of me either. Well, that, my friend, is not surprising. I could see why some people look at you as annoying. (laughs) And uh, for the listeners at home, he was staring and making very good eye contact with John. Tonight we are talking about the Shawshank Redemption. This is the bookend to our Stephen King series, which we started back in October for our Halloween. Uh, Clearly, this is not a Halloween film. However, this is, in my opinion, one of Stephen King's best. It's actually... That was made into a movie. He has actually gone out and said that this is probably one of his favorite adaptations of his book to a movie. And interestingly enough, this is from a novella called Different Seasons. Different Seasons originally came about because his uh, his editors wanted him to not produce or put out this this story because it wasn't what he was known for. He's a successful horror genre. And he wrote other things as well that weren't necessarily of horror. And so these sat on the back burners. And we also had The Body that was a part of Different Seasons and Apt Pupil. And there was a fourth one. I don't remember what the fourth one is. And these stories ended up coming out in this book called Different Seasons because it's a different take on what Stephen King does. And he's actually a very effective writer, even though it's not horror. And he has several stories that are not horror whatsoever. And the body went on to become Stand By Me. And then App Pupil was actually made into a film called App Pupil. So, yeah. Um, I'm curious I heard, what the fourth one was. I heard, I haven't read uh, Four Seasons, but I did. Different, different seasons. Or different seasons. But I did hear that Andy Dufresne appears in a callback in App Pupil. Interesting. 
He's the lawyer, I guess, for the Nazi guy or something like that. Oh. Or he represents, he controls his finances. So there is a reference, you know, again, how Stephen King connects up his universe. He does appear in another story. Yeah, interesting. I got a question for both of you. There is another movie that we reviewed that helped inspire the structure of this movie and how this movie was made. Do you know what movie that is? Yeah. Good, Goodfellas. That is the answer because the director is so in love with Goodfellas, he wanted to create something that complemented Goodfellas with the narration and the passage of time. Well, you know, they say imitation is the highest form of flattery, so that makes a lot of sense. Released on September 23rd, 1994, The Shawshank Redemption is based on the book Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. It was directed by Frank Darabont, screenplay by Frank Darabont, and it stars Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Bob Gunton, William Sadler, Clancy Brown, Gil Bellows, James Whitmore, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? Uh, this movie was made for $25 million, but Didn't it only bring in like sixteen? Yeah, yes. The first year, box office, it had $16 million. Yeah. And so it was considered to be a dud, and it didn't make its production costs back. Yeah, it, it, it's not until later that it makes all its money and becomes what it is. But when it was released, yeah, it was a fucking flop. Isn't that weird? Mm -hmm. This flop, incidentally, was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Incredible. So yeah. here's here's other movies that were released in the same year, and they also had $16 million box office. And tell me if you even have thought of any of these other movies, I mean, even once. Shadowlands, Lightning Jack, Andre, Blink, Baby's Day Out, my Girl 2, The War, Terminal Velocity, Monkey Trouble, Above the Rim. I wouldn't put any of those in the same category. Uh, I do like me some Above the Rim. I will say that. But I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, uh, this year, Lion King was the, uh, was the big winner with $300 million, And then Forrest Gump at 298 which, by the way, uh, kicked Shawshank in the balls several times over when it came to the Academy Awards. And then the third one was True Lies. I think it was Morgan Freeman. It could have been Tim Robbins. One of them said that they thought the reason why the movie did so poorly was the name. That nobody knew what Shawshank Redemption was or what it meant. So they just weren't interested in going and seeing it. Morgan Freeman at the time considered the possibility that it is largely because of word of mouth that a movie is popular. And so if it is not something that you can recall off the top of your head, then people don't know the name of the movie that they're supposed to be going to see. And now it's history because it's now classified as one of the greatest movies ever made. It's also, according to what I read, the first movie that Morgan Freeman did the narration for. So this led to all his future endeavors with narrations. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think they just it gave us that even. I have to say that alone, I really felt like he was reading to me from the book. This movie certainly uh, helped a blockbuster movie out because this was the movie that was rented for that year when it came out. And that's where it ended up making all of its money. Ted Turner, who had a lot of money into this movie, uh, sold it to his TV station. Uh, I think it was TBS or Turner Network. Sold it to them super cheap. And that's why if you ever, like any weekend, turn on you know TBS, it's always playing. Yeah. Let's talk about Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont, he directed and also wrote the screenplay for this. And his screenplay work was uh, very prolific in the 90s. He was very much a go-to guy 
for uh, screen uh, adaptations, uh, rewrites, uncredited works that he also had as well. But he is uh, largely responsible for uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Mm-hmm. And that gave him his big break. But after this, he also did The Green Mile and The Mist. So he's definitely got uh, a soft heart for Stephen King work. Yeah. But uh, he didn't necessarily direct a whole bunch of other things outside of Stephen King that I was uh, that I appreciated. The one that I do like is uh, Jim Carrey's The Majestic. I thought it was interesting to read, uh, since you bring up The Green Mile, he originally wanted Tom Hanks to play Andy Dufresne. Uh, but he had scheduling conflicts with doing Forrest Gump, which I guess, did that come out in the same year? Yeah. Yeah. 1994. So he couldn't do it. So because of that, he put Tom Hanks in the Green Mile. Again, the rest is history, right? Hanks gives up uh, Shawshank to win an Academy Award, you know, of choice. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the Academy Awards were, you know, you said that you mentioned that they had seven nominations. It had it for picture, actor, in a, uh, for Morgan Freeman, writing for Frank Darabont, cinematography, Roger Deakins, we'll get back to, uh, sound, film editing, and best original score by Thomas Newman. And we'll get back to him as well. So it loses best picture to Forrest Gump, but this was also the year of Pulp Fiction. Uh, you have uh, Forrest Gump for best actor, so they lost on that one. Writing, Forrest Gump, they lost on that one too. The cinematography, they lost to Legends of the Fall. The sound, they lost to Speed. Speed won an Academy Award. I remember that. It's in a podcast. Go back and listen to it. Best film editing, Forrest Gump. So they lost most of theirs to Forrest Gump. What a drag. Quick question. Which one do you like better, Forrest Gump or I Shawshank? I was just going to ask that. Shawshank, hands down. Oh, really? Don? Depends on my mood. I really like Forrest Gump. That's a good point, but I, I think I lean more towards Forrest Gump. So Roger Deakins, he's the the cinematographer for this. He ended up getting uh, two Academy Awards for uh, one of which we did already review, which was 1917. The other one he got was for Blade Runner 2049. But this dude's been nominated 14 times for his cinematography work. He is an excellent cameraman. And this is where he gets his first Oscar nomination is for Shawshank. The, the sound, Thomas Newman. He's definitely got this specific sound which i love this dude has been nominated 15 times and he has no academy awards to his name and so he's tied with another conductor for having the most nominations with no wins wow uh did you hear about some of the other people they wanted to play in this movie uh i had heard rumblings about harrison ford um kevin costner tom cruise the big names at the time. Well, originally they came really close with Harrison Ford as Red and Tom Cruise as Andy, which I think would have been a completely different movie. Um, I don't think it would have worked as well at all. They also wanted Brad Pitt to play Tommy, but Tom, but Brad Pitt was doing interview at a vamp- with a vampire at the time. Definitely changes the dynamic of the film. Yeah, I think their casting worked out really well. Well, yeah, seven Academy Award nominations. So, Tim Robbins, do you have a favorite Tim Robbins movie? Uh, I think... Uh, or what do you think of when you think of Tim Robbins? The first thing, I think, is, yeah. uh, the first thing I think of is Bull Durham. Same. Yeah. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And then another one that I totally love Tim Robbins and, and I haven't seen in ages is The Player. I kind of... I don't know why it keeps popping in my head, but I kind of liked him in War of the Worlds. Oh, his crazy... Uh, 
loony. Yeah, bit. just the him just going crazy and violent yeah. and all that. Just a different character for him. Yeah, Tim Robbins is a great actor. What yeah. about what about you, know, Morgan Freeman? Uh, I knew that was next, and my favorite Morgan Freeman performance is probably The Unforgiven. I can't have a favorite one for him because he's done so many things. You know, he's Lucius Fox for Batman, right? Unforgiven, so good. But well, he, well, if you can't have one, then why do you ask the fucking question? Because I'm curious to know if you or you, John, have a, a favorite, or what do you first think of when you think of Morgan Freeman in a role? You're going to hate my answer. You're, it's Bruce Almighty, isn't it? It's Bruce Almighty. God damn, I really like him a playing God. Book. That, and again, the narration for War of the Worlds. Yeah, well, fuck, anything he narrates, mm-hmm. I'll watch. <laughs> uh, who narrates Waterworld? Is it James Earl Jones or is it Morgan Freeman? Anybody? Shit, I don't know. All right, listeners, if you know, let me. Let me know. We need. To I re- think. I think it's uh, Morgan Freeman. We should totally sure. review Waterworld. Oh, 100 percent. Clancy Brown. He plays Captain Hadley. Uh huh. What's your favorite movie with Clancy Brown? Favorite movie with Clancy Brown. It is not Highlander. Thank you. Damn it. Yeah, that's what I was. Going I knew with that's exactly where you were going. He will always be the Kurgan. I don't know if I have a favorite with Clancy Brown. He's a good dick and a lot of stuff he has over 300 acting credits i fucking believe it Does that include his animated work too because he yeah. does voiceovers amazing he's great in the animated stuff yeah that's all of it but you know he, he's 60 something years old and he's got like 300 credits holy shit man mm-hmm. that is one busy motherfucker yeah that's awesome in 1947 portland maine banker andy dufresne is convicted of murdering his wife and her lover and is sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at the shawshank state prison he is befriended by ellis red redding an inmate and prison contraband smuggler serving a life sentence who procures a rock hammer and a large poster of rita hayworth for andy assigned to work in the prison laundry andy is frequently sexually assaulted by the sisters and their leader Boggs Diamond. In 1949, Andy overhears the captain of the guards, Byron Headley, complaining about being taxed on an inheritance and offers to help him shelter the money legally. After an assault by the sisters nearly kills Andy, Hadley beats and cripples Boggs, who is subsequently transferred to another prison. Andy is not attacked again. Warden Samuel Norton meets Andy and reassigns him to the prison library to assist elderly inmate Brooks Hadlin. A front to use Andy's financial expertise to manage financial matters for other prison staff and the warden himself. Andy begins writing weekly letters to the state legislature requesting funds to improve the prison's decrepit library. So the movie starts off with the trial and we get a quick backstory on what's going on and and the murder and the trial and the sentencing all happens within the credits. What do you guys think of that? I have really enjoyed that because it gets us very quickly through why we are at Shawshank Prison in a very efficient manner. We have uh, the intercutting back and forth between the night of the murder and the trial. Yeah, and then uh, it it gives us an idea of how Andy Dufresne is, really, because he, he, I always took his look of like utter disbelief and he can't believe that this is happening to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he has maintained his innocence. He says he didn't do it. Although all the fucking evidence leads to it. I mean, this is 1947 after he, all. He definitely seems like he's in a state of shock the whole time. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. State of shock. And, um, 
you know, the judge says you are heartless and cold and you're getting two life sentences back to back. During the trial, did you get the connection to yet another Stephen King story? No. They mentioned where he threw the, the gun. Do you know where he threw the gun? Oh, in that river? In the Royal River. Yeah, it's the same river from Stand By Me. Where the leeches happen. Yeah. After this bit, uh, we get to meet Red, and he's going before the parole board, and, you know, this is our chance to kind of see and meet Morgan Freeman's character. The photos that they use when they're looking in the folder at his files, do you know who that photo was of? That's his son. That's one of his sons, yeah, his youngest son. What you guys think of Morgan Freeman? I thought it, I thought it was really well done. Um, the fact that they, you know, it changes throughout the movie because if you notice when he comes in the first time and again he, you know, he's just giving the spiel that they want to hear, but they tell him sit. The second time he comes in, it's sit down. Third time he comes in for his parole, it's sit down, please. So you can see how it kind of transcends as he gets older. But this is the first time we're getting to see him in there. And again, like I said, he's just giving the speech they want to hear, which of course they quickly deny him. Yeah. And so he gets uh, denied parole, and then uh, Andy arrives. And this is, we get this big sweeping shot of the prison. The fresh fish. Yep. And uh, all the fish come to Shawshank. That is such beautiful camera work. The camera starts outside the front, and then we follow the bus up the drive, and then we go sweeping up over the top of the roof line after we get a over the top of the roof line, we see the courtyard with everybody out there and the camera swings across and we see around the courtyard and we can see the back area of the front buildings now. And then the camera takes us outside the gate and then it swings us down onto the street to where we see the bus turning onto the street coming towards us. And the bus drives towards us and then we end up into the gate. Yeah. yeah. So, so beautifully shot. And all of the prisoners arrive and they are ushered in. And this is, I mean, we've kind of got uh, introduced to Red and his gang. uh, And now they're taking bets because this is what they do at prison, I guess. And um, Red says that he thinks that Andy will be the first one to break. Yeah, he'll be the first one to cry. Yeah, and he, he bets a lot of cigarettes on it. So the fresh fish get inducted uh, into, or they get processed into the prison, right. and we're going to go through everyone's first night, and uh, let, this is where we meet the warden. Yeah, let, let's talk about meeting the warden and meeting the captain of the guard. Go ahead. Well, warden, he, uh, Norton, he comes across as being so stiff and proper, and he is the introduction that you read to us. Right after that introduction, any questions? Yeah, when do we eat? And then he just turns to he just turns to Hadley, and Hadley walks up and you eat when we say you eat. And then he right into the gut, and then he calls him a motherfucker. And oh, okay, so clearly the <laughs> two different worlds here. The warden has no no intention whatsoever of upholding everything that he just got done talking about. Well, do you uh, remember what the first rule of Shawshank is? We don't talk about Shawshank. Oh, for fuck's sake, you drive me up the wall. Do you remember? No. Uh, you will not blasphemy. Okay. The number one rule isn't you won't kill or you won't get in a fight or you won't do anything he, wrong. He won't tolerate it. But then two minutes later. Right. Well, as long as he's not blaspheming, 
clearly the warden doesn't fucking care. Uh, Hadley is his iron fist and he flexes it as often as he needs to. I got the impression that no matter what happened here, somebody was going to get beat up because they had to make an example for all the, Oh yeah. Yeah. They had to, they had to show us. So they just picked this guy who spoke out. Well, yeah. I mean, they were going to hit whoever spoke out. Mm -hmm. It was a trick question. Right. Uh, And Andy smart keeps to himself. I got a quick question for you guys. Uh, and we're going to probably talk a little bit here and there about the differences between the movie and the book version, all of that. But we were talking earlier about Red's parole hearing and all that. And it comes out that the reason why Red is there is there was a botched, I think, bank robbery or some kind of robbery that he ended up shooting and killing someone. And you think, okay, well, he's served some time. We're starting to like this character. We can get over that fact. In the book, it was completely different, and I wonder if it would have affected your feelings towards him. In the book, he tried to kill his wife by uh, severing the brakes in her car, and she that day gave a a ride to a neighbor and a neighbor's child, and all three of them got killed. Does that make you feel any different about Red? No, no. Would because, you still have liked him just as much? No, because that had that, nothing to do with the story. It never okay. came out. It was never told to us. So I just want to know because it kind of made him feel more of a, I don't, more of a violent killer. More of a. This wasn't just a botched robbery with an accidental shooting. He purposely that's, you know, went to kill. That's his not wife. the red we got. Yeah, all all I really know about him is that he's trying to get out of prison by telling the parole board what they want to hear. And they don't buy it for a New York second, and that's all I know. Right, because according to Red, everybody's innocent in Shawshank. Well, I also got the impression that he was telling them what they wanted to hear, but deep down he knew that by telling them that, he wasn't going to get out. Because he said it was just the same old stuff. When he comes back out, you know, nobody gets paroled, whatever. Because later on in the movie, we find out he, just like um, the other guy, he doesn't want to leave. He, he's institutionalized. He's scared of the outside. So it's the first night, lights are off, and they start fishing. <laughs> um, fucking traumatizing. No shit. I'm telling you, I mean, just the thought of prison. And then, you know, the, narr- the narration that we get and how Andy's getting processed through and, and then the... the, uh, the louser. Cell- yeah. Well, I mean, 1947, man. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cell door slams shut and he says, you know, that's when you know it's real is when you're in that cell by yourself. And I'm just thinking, fuck that. Well, here's another quick thing. Again, I know you love it when I bring up book stuff. But throughout the movie, Andy is able to barter with Red to get items. And one of the things that came out in the book that they left out of the movie was that's because he had $500 up his kazoo, up his ass, basically hidden. So that's one of the things they didn't reveal when they went through and checked everything. They didn't find the $500 that Andy had hidden in his pocket purse, I guess they call it. Prison purse. Prison purse. Yeah. So Haywood's fish cries first. I'm not supposed to be here. And in comes Hadley for a royal beating. Mother fuck. What a beat down. And the other guards just watched. That's one thing I thought was interesting. Nobody even tried to slow him down at all. He's a captain of the guards. 1947. Yeah. Why would they? I mean, I, I can see somebody getting one or two, you know, in, in prison life like that. But he, you know, he, he was kicked a couple times. He must have been hit like 10 times. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, you should have shut the fuck up. <sighs> Did you expect him to die? Uh, I didn't really care. Didn't surprise me. Uh, true, he, true. He was just an example. I kind of felt like the next morning when we found out he died, it was 
it wasn't a huge oh shit, but it was kind of an oh shit moment for me. Like, oh my God, that guy died. Oh, oh poor guy. What was his name? I have feelings. Sometimes. Uh, does it matter? No. that that's I know what that's, the, yeah. isn't that what they said? Well, so, he say, so, so Haywood, he, he says, why does it matter? That's what I just said. Yeah, but you didn't say it like, does it matter? Oh, for fuck's sakes. This guy. My point is, I knew where you were going. What is his name? It's never mentioned. Okay, so what the uh, fuck are we talking about? I think in the credits, <laughs> isn't he just called Fat Guy? or uh, Probably. I don't know. Do you know who auditioned for that Kev- role? Kevin Smith. No. John Favreau uh, auditioned for that and apparently did not get that role. Well, obviously he didn't get it. Uh, but yeah. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it didn't look like him. Uh, well, he did kind of look all makeup up, but I feel like we're spending a lot of time on the fat guy. And right after this, we are introduced to Brooks. And Brooks is and Brooks has a little friend in his pocket with him. Yeah, because uh, they're eating and Andy finds a maggot in... In his food. Yeah, and then you're thinking, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's what he's thinking. So then we cut to the showers and we get to meet the sisters. And they want to use Andy as a plaything. Uh, which again, fucking terrifying, right? That's I mean, probably one of the biggest fears about going to prison. I think that's the biggest fear of mm-hmm. going to prison. Fucking just terrifying. And they do such a good job. I mean, I feel I feel terrified for Andy watching these scenes. You know what I mean? Because the guy they get to play Boggs, he's fucking menacing. And so after, you know, they're in the shower, they threaten him and he walks away and they don't do anything to him this time. Uh, and then he likes it when they play hard to get well boggs likes it when mm-hmm. they play hard to get um and so now this is where we get and, to the courtyard and this is where andy meets red and this is uh where morgan freeman hurt his arm because he had to play catch for nine hours and he had to come the next day in a sling yeah. his arm in a sling fucking crazy and andy asks for a rock hammer and the rock hammer is not going to be an easy purchase and it's going to cost him some extra money. And I thought that it, I really enjoyed uh, having read like, what are you going to do with it? Right. Cause he's worried about the sisters and you know, maybe you're going to tunnel out of here. And I thought that it was uh, it was nice writing here to have our characters get to establish with each other that they can have this rapport. This is where we first get the rapport back and forth between Red and Andy, and we're establishing a, the beginning of a friendship. And there is a, a mutual respect there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andy, you can see why everyone thinks that he's standoffish and kind of a prude. But I refer to him as snobby. Snobby. Um, but after they start uh, interacting with each other, yeah, that, that friendship and that bond is quickly established. This is the bit where Red goes, well, can you kill somebody with this? And, and Andy goes, you'll understand when you see it. And then when we did get to see the rock hammer, I kept thinking, yeah, you can kill somebody with that thing. Oh, a hundred percent. So I could definitely be used as a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Well then fucking Andy lied to him. Oh, for fuck's sake. You know what? This movie just went down a point in my book. I enjoyed seeing uh, Red's uh, process of having his uh, contraband come into the prison. That was that was a nice little sequence. How it showed this is how stuff gets into the prison. Yeah, and and it's a quick storytelling method that just catches us up. And then when it gets to Red, he checks it out, and then he says, "Oh, I finally get the joke. Why Andy thought this was funny." And then we get the bit about he remembers when he first saw it, thinking it would take someone six hundred years to tunnel out of here. So, which is why he didn't think it was a uh, threat 
to and, the tunneling process. Right. And then right after this, we are introduced to the brutality of the sisters. Uh, and Andy's on laundry duty, has to go get something, and they fucking attack him. You know, and we have Red's narration over the top of it, and we're shown, but we're not really shown. It was done very, very well as as the brutality begins and then and ends, and now it moves to the next phase. The camera backs away, and then we go around the corner. Right. I love the dialogue in this movie. How they just talk about because this is where they say, you know, I, I like to say that Andy put up a good fight, but this isn't a fairy tale. It's just it. It was very well written, like you were talking about earlier. Like Morgan Freeman is writing or reading from a book. Um, I guess in the book version, the reason for that is because Red's character is writing a memoir about his experiences in Shawshank. So he that's supposed to be him, you know, basically reading it as he's writing it. Yeah, and he's white and Irish. Yeah, which and- is why the joke at the movie of. Um, why, yeah, why are you named Red? Why, why do they call you Red? Yeah. <clears throat> and then we come to find out that this is Andy's routine for two years. 1949, and it's, there's a roofing detail being put together. And Red, being a man who knows how to get things, gets him and his buddies on roofing detail. And I, I like this bit, too, because this kind of shows you how smart Andy really is. You know what I mean? Uh He's kind of got a plan. You know, he's trying to make it by, and Andy's motif throughout the whole movie is trying to maintain just an ounce of normalcy in a place that where it doesn't belong. Well, he's also, there's an ongoing theme that King put in there that uh, overall it's all about hope and maintaining hope. And they talk, they say the words several times throughout the movie. Um, and so, yeah, he's trying to give people hope and rekindle it. Another narration point is the feeling of freedom and how people have a lack of freedom. And this is an undercurrent that's also conveyed throughout the story that people such as Brooks and then eventually Red, they have their own prison walls in their heads and they are trapped by them. And how do you set yourself free from your prison that holds you in how do you have hope when you don't have hope? And we get to see an undercurrent of this happen in the uh, maintaining of Andy's dignity, if you will. Something that I thought was interesting, and looking back, I think you said what this was year 1949? Was yeah. that the year? Yes. Uh, back then, when Hadley's talking about the money he's inheriting, it was like around $20,000, I think. 35000 $35,000. By today's standard, if you were to take that, that was talking about about $300,000. Uh, they're on the roof. Dig that camera work. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, Andy overhears Hadley. And Andy's going gonna, Andy's gonna to make a choice. You know, as, for being as smart as Andy is, why is the first thing out of his mouth, do you trust your wife, to a guard you know who's killed and beats... For the fun of it. I love that his friends in the background, don't do it, don't stop. I, I know, they were tripping, right? Yeah. Why say, why say, do you trust your wife? Yeah, no kidding. Could have just started with, I can help you with that money. Totally right, but he doesn't. And Hadley, I like how Hadley says, uh, this guy's going to have an accident and fall off the, the roof. And so then Andy quickly changes his tune and tells him he'll help, he'll help him. And thus starts a relationship with Andy and 
Hadley. I would like to point out that the roof scene, especially specifically the beers, I think this is my favorite scene in the movie. The music is played so tenderly, and the and the camera work and the lighting is so beautiful. It's my favorite part in the movie. Speaking of that and the camera work and all that, again, I agree with you. This is one of my favorite scenes was when Andy was sitting there while everyone was drinking the beers and just had this, you know, gaze off into the distance with a smile on his face, like he had accomplished something and that it had rekindled his hope a bit. Uh, And so after that, uh, Andy asks Red to get him some rocks uh, because uh, they're playing checkers. And this is where they discuss how chess is a real game. And again, that's going to go on throughout the movie. This also shows that they are, uh, growing in their friendship yeah this can't this conversational uh back and forth that they have with each other yeah and then they're at the movie theater and they're watching uh gilda and this is where andy walks in and he (laughs) he always addresses red by saying um i understand you're a man who knows how to get things it's just kind of an ongoing thing between them two again it's just establishing their friendship anyways uh he asks for rita hayworth can you get her? Well, I don't have her in my pants. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> Immediately before this scene, though, we do have a pivotal moment. Andy starts etching his name into the wall. As he puts his A in, it, it, we don't see anything after that, after he finishes his A. We now jump to the theater. I love how when Andy first comes to talk to him, he says, oh, hold on a sec. This is the moment she's about to do the thing with her hair. Oh, this is the best part. This is the best part, yeah. That's great. And then when she whips it up, uh, the crowd... They all cheer. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after this, another confrontation with Boggs. Uh, which turns out to be the final confrontation with Boggs. Uh, they trap him up in the projection booth. Uh, they're going to make him do some unspeakable things. With his mouth. I love the conversation that he has with Boggs. As, the guy, as Boggs has the spike to his head and is about talking, you know, using his intelligence of, do you know what happens when you spike someone's head and the involuntary clenching of the mouth? Yeah. And that was a, just a great way to talk him, you know, talk his way out of that. I mean, yeah, it was a great way of talking him out of that, but he did get beaten to the inch of his life. Yeah, he didn't have to do what they wanted him to do, though. So you would rather get beaten to an inch of your life? Spend a month. Than get raped? It, it's a... It's one way or the other. I don't think I'd. Ra- I don't think I'd want to get raped either. So. Would you? Well, rather, okay, okay. Nobody a, would want either of them. I would take a beating over being raped to the inch of your life. Yes. Well, I guess at some point you'd be knocked out, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. But that rehabilitation time. It all comes down to. Eh, I'd take a shot in the mouth. It. It all comes down to what you're willing to live with. I, I suppose. So after Andy is beaten within an inch of his life, Hadley... He has a week in solitary, and then he finally gets back to his self, and then, surprise! And then Boggs gets beaten to an inch of his life and made a cripple and transferred. So that's what you get for fucking with Hadley's cash cow. Love that drag shot of... That low-angle drag shot of Boggs when he's trying to get stay, out of his cell yeah he's starting to crawl out and then we get a straight on but then you get another slide shot and whoop, he's slid well the fact too that he is screaming to the point where everybody in the prison can hear him begging for help and there's not a response there's no other sound as he just gets dragged right back in yep yep because i mean it's hadley what are you gonna do mm-hmm. so the guys start collecting rocks for andy and then eventually 
we have Andy. He gets out and he gets back to his cell and there's a little gift for him. Rita Hayworth is waiting for him. After that, we have the warden show up and he wants to size up Andy. So they go in, they toss his cell, the warden comes in and immediately, you know, Andy's holding his Bible and the warden is very pleased about that. You know, so they exchange their Bible verses back and forth. And this is totally a power move, 100%, right? This is what the warden does. Mm -hmm. And he decides that Andy deserves to be transferred. And so Andy gets a detail in the library. Well, one of the things I love is during that back and forth with the warden and Andy, uh, I think it's the warden that says about the book that, you know, you're holding salvation in your hands, unbeknownst to him. It's true because that's where the rock hammer is hidden. Yeah, but we don't find that out until the end. I know, but that's one of those things that just kind of, you know, the light bulb goes on at the end, thinking back to that line earlier on. Oh, yeah, this whole movie is filled with that. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it enjoyable. Yeah, there's a fair amount of symbolism in this movie. Yeah. And so Andy gets uh, sent to the library to help Brooks out, and this is where uh, Andy gets the idea to start writing for money to upgrade the library and he starts writing a letter every week well he also during this time gets really finds out the reason why he got transferred because all the guards start showing up with their tax papers and questions and uh basically he was just put down there to be the tax accountant for all the prison (laughs) i love it that first guard shows up and he's like uh have a seat and he sets it up like a little desk and he's all hey uh brooks do you have a Piece of paper and a pencil. Well, I love how when Brooks is recounting the story right after that, they called him Mr. Dufresne. Mr. Dufresne, if you please. Brooks is paroled in 1954 after serving 50 years, but he cannot adjust to the outside world and eventually hangs himself. The legislature sends a library donation that includes a recording of the marriage of Figaro. Andy plays an excerpt over the public address system and is punished with solitary confinement. After his release from solitary, Andy explains to a dismissive Red that hope is what gets him through his time. In 1963, Norton begins exploiting prison labor for public works, profiting by undercutting skilled labor costs and receiving bribes. Andy launders the money using the alias Randall Stevens. What'd you think of this whole, uh, again, I always bring a foreshadowing, but I don't know if it's really foreshadowing, but this whole idea of we're getting to see what it's like for a convict on the outside. Yeah, they're setting us up mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, sad. It's heartbreaking. But it was a fact of life. It, so it I, Again, I love movies that make me think and go beyond just watching the movie because you're, you're, you're thinking about it later. And the idea of the whole reason they're going to prison is one, to pay for their crime and two, to rehabilitate them, to make them a better person when they get outside. And really the prison's not having that effect on them. It's not making them a better person. And when they get outside, they've been, you know, in prison so long, they can't make it. They can't function. So it's just kind of a, I mean, it makes the story even sadder at that point. So Brooks, uh, having him leaving, I really appreciated how Andy is able to get through to Brooks when he says to Brooks, look at his neck. He, he's bleeding. That moment, because all of the other talk, nope, doesn't reach him. But I like that moment, how he's able to talk to him like a person and not desperate. Well, and I think that he's always talked to him like that. 
And so there was that rapport and they got to work together for, you know, many years. And so I think Brooks really, really trusts Andy and, you know, he had a moment of weakness and he's fucking scared, man. I mean, can you blame the guy? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's so scared that he kills himself. So, I mean, either way you slice it, it's fucking heartbreaking. There's a nice little montage as well, having him read his letter that Andy is reading about his time outside of prison and what his life is like. And in the end, he's decided not to stay. This is around the time that the books arrive, I think, right afterwards. Yes. After, And I love the letter back from the governor, which is, now you can stop writing us. And I love we Andy's response. The, we consider the matter closed. Yeah. Uh, Andy's like, fuck that. I'm going to start writing two letters a week. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I like, uh, Hadley's such a dick, right? I mean, he walks in, what's all this shit? It's addressed to you, fuckstick. But the other guard, the other guard is kind of like, good for you, Andy. Yeah. You know, so you can tell that, you know, the guards like Andy. I mean, he's, he's kind of like a good prisoner, I guess. Did you get the uh, fact that they brought up the Count of Monte Cristo, its connection to this movie? Yeah, Andy says, you'll love it. It's a prison break. Yeah, and it's about basically a guy who's falsely accused, goes to prison for many years, and while in prison, discovers a treasure where he is able to you know, through figuring out, and it actually takes him longer, but through figuring out a way, escapes from prison, you know, this whole big plan of, I think, tunneling out even in kind of Monte Cristo, he tunnels out, finds the treasure, and goes on to make the people pay. So it, it's almost a retelling of this story. Yeah, almost. So at this particular juncture in the story, we have one of these iconic moments that I think everybody thinks about is when the uh, the piece of music is played throughout the courtyard and everybody stops and just stands and stares. Now, I would say this is one of my favorite scenes. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, Andy's just bringing art and love to a fucking prison. He's bringing freedom. Yeah, because they all say that. They are, what is that red dialogue is, for once they felt like free men. But what my favorite bit about this is, is when uh, the warden comes in and Hadley and he's locked him out. And uh, the warden's like, you shut this off right now. And Dufresne goes to he, turn it off. He leans he, forward. And he's like, he gives him kind of a fuck you and he turns it up. But what sells it is when uh, the warden goes, all right, you call down the thunder. And then Hadley walks up, bangs on the glass with tap, his nightstick. Now you're mine. <laughs> At- Anytime, and I know your answer to this, did you feel bad for the guard locked in the bathroom? No, why? Because you know he got his ass kicked later, and he was actually being nice to Andy the whole time. Oh, yeah, uh, Andy completely fucked him. Yeah, and that guy got fucked over. You know either he lost his job or just Hadley beat the hell out of him. Yeah, never gave it two thoughts. And then after his solitary time, we sit down at the table, and then we have Andy talking about He had Mozart in his head and, you know, his feeling of hope is dashed by Red and Red thinks that you are, you shouldn't be doing this to yourself. And we get this little moment where Red talks about music was something once upon a time for him with a harmonica when he was young. Yeah. Red has a second parole meeting. It's 30 years now he's been in prison. And once again, he gets rejected. Rejected. In 1959... There is a library renovation that takes place. Because the two letters worked, and you get the whole Brooks Halton Memorial Museum, or library. Is that where they're paying him like $500? Every year. Every year, something like that, just to shut him up and stop him? Yeah. 
In the meantime, Warden Norton, he starts a new work program. And this work program, it's going to go ahead and take all of the local economy, all of the local labor uh, into the shitter because he's undercutting everybody with his slave labor. And we get to see the bribes that are happening. So we know that the warden is making uh, a lot of illegal money, but he has to hide it somehow. And he has Andy. And so now we get to see the shady undercurrent, that inner workings, if you will, of how the money laundering is happening. I, I love that bit when Red and Andy are walking through the library and Red and Andy's explaining, you know what I mean? And Red just can't fucking believe it. You just can't make somebody up. Randall Stevens, the silent, silent partner. And he did. He just yeah. fucking made him Got up. Got a driver's on- license, social security card, birth certificate, all of it. And it's all on paper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the funny thing is on the outside, I was an honest man. Straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. We did gloss over. I didn't, we didn't necessarily talk about it at the Brooks suicide part. That That is when Red talks about being institutionalized. And I think that that is a great encompassment of what is happening when you are institutionalized, coming in, not wanting the prison walls, and then they become comfortable, and then you come to depend on them. It's because you understand. I mean, this is how your world works. Everything has an exact order to it. And, you know, you start to point, you know, as like Red comments later, you know, people are telling you what to do, where to be, how to do it, things like that. You start depending on that. And when you're out there and you have all that freedom again and the world's moving so fast, you just can't keep up. And you have people that you already know and talk to. In the outside world, you have nobody potentially to talk to. And that's what happened to Brooks. He grew incredibly lonely. Well, in, in the criminology classes I took in college, uh, the teacher was, I just loved this teacher. He was just incredible. But he would talk about, he was actually a parole, you know, worked as a parole person uh, for a long time before he became a teacher or while he was a teacher, I'm not sure. But he would talk about a lot of criminals who had been in jail for a long time, got out, would purposely commit crimes because they wanted to get back to the prison. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about revenge. It wasn't about anything else. They just were so afraid on the outside that they couldn't function on the outside. They were happier on the inside. I had somebody uh, that was living next door to us when I was a kid, and I had that same story given to me by my dad that the guy who used to live next door to us for a couple of years he's in he's in prison why why is he in prison what did he do he's a nice guy and that was my dad's summary more or less he just felt more comfortable i think being in prison tommy williams is incarcerated for burglary in 1965 andy and red befriend him and andy helps him pass his ged exam a year later, Tommy reveals to Red and Andy that his cellmate at another prison had claimed responsibility for the murders for which Andy was convicted. Andy approaches Norton with his information, but Norton refuses to listen. And when Andy mentions the money laundering, Norton sends him back to solitary confinement. Norton has Hadley fatally shoot Tommy under the guise of an escape attempt. Andy refuses to continue the money laundering, but Norton threatens to destroy the library, remove Andy's protection from the guards, and move him to worse conditions. Andy is released from solitary confinement after two months, and he tells a skeptical Red that his dreams of living in Sehuataneo, a Mexican town on the Pacific coast. Andy also tells him of a specific hayfield near Buxton, asking Red, once he is released, to retrieve a package that Andy buried there. 
Red worries about Andy's well-being, especially when he learns Andy asked a fellow inmate for some rope. So Tommy gets to the prison. Totally different intro for this Fresh Fish bus. We have this uh, boppy little tune playing. And so it it's a totally different vibe when Tommy comes in. I felt yeah. like Elvis was coming to the prison. Well, it fit the character. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the vibe. You got the uh, Mr. 19- Rock and Roll. 1950s greaser. Coming into Shawshank. I love when he's talking about, when Tommy's talking about all the different prisons he'd been in and all the crimes he committed and all that. And Andy was like, maybe you need to find a new profession because you suck at it being a criminal. Yeah, you're pretty lousy being a thief. And then so uh, time goes on and the kid wants to earn his GED and he had heard that Andy had helped some fellows. And so Andy takes him under his wing. And we begin this whole mentor-student relationship between uh, Tommy and Andy. We have a quick panning camera shot of Andy's cell that I appreciated because it's showing uh, a further progression passage of time. We have a new poster that's up, and we see that Andy's cell has a somewhat halfway done chess set. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I thought this was a, a nice passage to show this is this is a lot later right uh they do a really good job on keeping us up on how much time is passing maybe not so much how much time but that time is passing and uh there's three posters throughout the movie and i thought they did a great job of giving us the year decade or the era we were in uh per the poster i guess also uh tim robbins was given the option he decorated that cell himself he came up with the idea of what posters and things that he wanted in that that prison cell i got a question we're in prison and i'm guessing that when you're in prison you spend a lot of time in your cell right i don't you think i would assume so yeah we spend almost no time in the cell this story my gosh does anybody spend any time in their cells because we're always someplace out in the courtyard eating meals and i'm thinking working wow you know these guys are probably out of their cells for one or two hours a day and when we see all of this together time you know the rest of the time they're just sitting around in the cell by themselves what a what a drag that's prison speaking of cells did you catch what cell number red was in 237 and where do we know that from? That's the room number in The Shining. It's just another connection to another Stephen King. I, I saw that when Red comes out of his cell. It said 237. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, look at that shit. And I've seen this movie a gazillion times, but I just noticed it on the last rewatch. I didn't catch it until I read it. So now the Raquel Welch poster is up, and it's 1966, and Tommy takes his GED, and he's pissed, and he throws it away. And Andy retrieves it and sends it in. And then we have Tommy talking about Elmo Blatch four years ago to Red and Andy. And immediately, Andy's like, fuck, I got to tell the warden. Be- before we get to this scene where he's telling the story, when I don't know if you can remember back to the first time you saw this movie. At any time, did you question whether Andy was guilty or not? Nope. Did you? No. And, you know, I-, I wondered when I first saw the movie, and I can actually remember this, thinking, is this going to have one of those kind of Stephen King twist endings that we're going to find out and through flashbacks that maybe Andy did do it? Maybe he's going to somehow repent or atone um, for actually committing the murder. But it's interesting that they, you know, they kept on that whole track of he was innocent the whole time. The Elmo Blatch reveal at night 
Nice camera work. Guy is genuinely creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's telling us the story of uh, what happened, and he's giddy about it. It makes sense, too. He was he got a job where he was casing rich people. And so Andy's like, fuck, I got to tell the warden. And he goes to tell the warden. And at some point, you have to ask yourself what Andy was thinking, because he goes up and he tells the warden, you know, I could be innocent without thinking that, you know, now the warden isn't going to be able to use Andy anymore. So why would the warden want that? Exactly. Plus, Andy knows too much. Exactly. Uh, My thought, too, was, you know, why even go to the warden? Why didn't he just originally start writing letters? But then I thought, well, the warden's going to read the letters. Something like that. So he's not going to be able to get any information out. Because definitely, if he got a new trial, there would have whether or not they can prove the other guy's guilty, there's doubt. And that would probably have gotten him off. And you know what? All this does, unfortunately, is get Andy two months in solitary and gets the kid killed. Mm -hmm. So there you go. But you knew it was coming. You you knew the kid had a target on his back because he was going to affect uh, the warden's cash flow. And again, kind of showing the, I don't know, the ego of Andy and whatever, the way he speaks to the warden. He says, how can you be so obtuse? Yeah. You knew that was just going to piss off the warden. And then bringing up, I won't even mention what goes on here. Yeah, yeah, no. Andy kind of shot himself in the foot with that one. Yeah. So could have handled it a little bit better, but he didn't. Nope. So Norton tells him to toe the line or else. And then once, you know, first of all, I love how they made the comment of a month in solitary is the longest, like, that any of these inmates know anybody's serving. And he does two months. Give him another month. Let, give him another month to think about it. And that that's just crazy enough. But when he gets out and you could almost feel just like how broken Andy is, especially over Tommy being killed, over the fact that he's not, you know, even though he's innocent and now everybody knows he's not going to get out of there. We don't know what Andy's working on. We just know that now maybe there is something to this. Maybe Andy is completely broken. And I love the conversation he has that he kind of just says all these things that, you know, when you get out of here, Red, I want you to go do this and this and this, and here's what my dreams were. And I love that uh, Red says to him, you know, in response to Andy's dream, that's a shitty pipe dream, which, of course, is an example of foreshadowing because what does Andy do? Crawls through a shitty pipe. Andy has a plan. We don't know it, uh, but he's, he's more or less saying goodbye to Red. If you ever get out, promise me this is what you'll do. I was so perplexed when I saw that the first time. How can Andy talk like this? How can he possibly know about what is going to be underneath this tree with the rock like that? What the fuck is he talking about? I was so dumbfounded with, why would Andy know that? How could Andy know that? And it didn't occur to me until I watched Red, you know, unpacking that stuff. But at the time, I was so perplexed. Yeah, and and what they want to make you feel is that Andy has been broken and he's going to give up and he's going to kill himself because that's what Red is thinking, mm-hmm. you know. So they go to, they're having lunch or whatever, and it comes up in conversation that Haywood gave Andy a rope six, six feet in yeah. length. Yeah, we are led to believe that something bad is going to happen. When he's talking about you'll find, you know, something buried under a rock that has no, un, you know, no earthly reason for being there. My first thought was Andy had buried something there back when he was courting his wife that maybe he would need in the future. And now he was giving it up because he wasn't going to get out. So he wanted red to have it. 
that's the impression that I got, whatever that buried treasure was. So it, it is the final night for Andy in Shawshank Prison. And we get a quick montage of the nightly duties. You know, Warden's like, let's go. I want to leave. Here, shine my shoes. Here's your bank deposit. Just like normal. Just another day. Just another day. Yep. And then we uh, cut to Andy sitting in his cell, mm-hmm. holding the rope. Lights we, go out. Lights go out. We cut back to Red. Red's worried. We cut back to Andy. What's going to happen? Longest night of my life. At the next day's roll call, the guards find Andy's cell empty. An irate Norton throws a rock at a poster of Raquel Welch hanging on the cell wall, revealing a tunnel that Andy dug with his rock hammer over the past 19 years. The previous night, Andy used the rope to escape through the tunnel and prison sewage pipe, taking Norton's suit, shoes, and ledger containing evidence of the money laundering. While guards search for him, Andy poses as Randall Stevens, withdraws over $370,000 of laundered money from several banks and mails the ledger and other evidence of the corruption and murders at Shawshank to a local newspaper. State police arrive at Shawshank and take Hadley into custody while Norton commits suicide to avoid arrest. The following year, Red is paroled after serving 40 years. He struggles to adapt to life outside prison and fears that he never will. Remembering his promise to Andy, he visits Buxton and finds a cachet containing money and a letter asking him to come to Sewataneo. Red violates his parole by traveling to Fort Hancock, Texas and crossing the border into Mexico, admitting that he finally feels hope. He finds Andy on a beach in Sewataneo and the two reunited friends happily embrace. Roll credits. So this third act of the movie is what it's all been building up to. And I got to say, as soon as we find out that he escapes and the way they cut it together and how it all goes down, it was just fucking masterful. Mm -hmm. It was a great, great fucking reveal. I was just about to say, I loved the reveal, you know, the kind of the classic twist that Stephen King puts on it, that this whole time while Andy's inspiring, you know, hope and working with different people, he's got his own thing going on that he's been doing this every day and how they subtly kind of reveal all the things that he's doing. Professor, you were talking about earlier, what with, what was the update with the rock hammer? Well, as he continues to carve his name, a chunk of the wall comes out and falls to the floor and shatters. And that starts the cogs spinning in Andy's mind. True, but how does he, so the, the guards don't notice that hole? Well, they probably don't notice that little chunk at first, or maybe he just puts up a picture hiding Little? It. That well, was a big fucking chunk. Yeah, he but, takes it and he breaks it up in his hand, and he doesn't have the fucking poster. Yeah, and it shows how soft that rock is. Right, so my question is... He could have put up like that picture of Einstein or I, whatever else. I, I think that he just hoped that nothing would come of it, and he, I think that he just left it alone. And if his cell gets tossed, his cell gets tossed. And hopefully it will just be the overall degradation of the prison. So I think that he just stopped right there and he didn't do anything else until he got the Rita Hayworth poster. Right. And and he just had to have real tight butt cheeks up until then. Right. Because we get a shot of him hiding underneath the poster, digging the hole, which, you know, uh, what does Red say? I remember joking it, take 600 years and he did it less than 20 
Yeah. They also show him walking out into the yard with the rocks and the rubble coming out of his pants. That's, I agree with, Red said that that was Andy's favorite part of the day, that he gets to take his cell outside. And I love that bit. I thought just a nice little, you know, this is how he did it. And he's walking and the shit's falling out of his pants. I I like that scene. Well, I love the fact too that, you know, he's so close with all his friends, but none of them had an inkling that he was doing any of this. Nobody oh. noticed anything. Like nobody ever looked at his feet. So that night, nobody noticed he was wearing the warden's shoes yeah. that he had polished up. Um, so it's just, you know, the fact that all of that was going on was just a great twist to this movie. Did you catch, and I honestly didn't catch it until this last viewing that I saw, when the warden opens up the book and sees where the rock hammer was Exodus. hidden. That, yeah. That the book chapter was Exodus. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't yeah. catch that the first time I saw it, I don't think. Of the things that Andy took from the cell, uh, or took with him, obviously he took the suit, he took all the paperwork, he took the ID and the birth certificate and all that. Uh, did you notice he took the chess set as well? Yeah. I didn't catch that. It was another thing I just caught, I think, with this last viewing, that obviously that meant something to him. Oh, absolutely. He spent all that time, and he loved the game of chess, mm-hmm. so... Makes sense that he took it. I kind of like to think that when Red finally found him, that that's what they're doing. Oh, 100%. And then he even says it. I'll keep the chessboard waiting for you. Mm -hmm. And then after he comes out of the sewer drain and he's standing there in the rain, iconic movie shot right there, everybody thinks of, you know, where we have Andy looking up to the sky and his arms are outstretched. I think this movie has two iconic movie shots that, you know, no question, this is what we're talking about. That is one of them. And the other one is when the warden rips the poster off and we're inside the hole. And Isn't that, that just reveal. so beautifully done? Because, you know, we, we don't know what to make of that. The, the, the side shot of his finger poke, and then all of a sudden his whole arm goes in. Whoa! That yeah. was awesome. Yeah, that, that, those are the two shots I definitely think of when I think of the Shawshank. When the director was interviewed about different things that he wanted the people to see in this movie and subtle hints at things, one of them we talked about was that rain shot in the river had kind of served two purposes. It was almost like a baptism. That was him being cleaned of everything that had gone on in Shawshank. That was a symbol of his freedom. It was also the river, the same Royal River that he threw the gun in that was part of the river to say that, yes, the river had got him put into the jail because if they had found the gun, they would have basically been able to free him the first time. Um, This time it had gotten, you know, now he's out of it. The other thing that the director wanted people to notice is that inside the prison, everything was very drab colors. It was all kind of rock and nasty right outside green grass. So the whole idea of, you know, things are greener on the outside, you know, things there's hope on the outside. It's all supposed to be represented in that scene. Meanwhile, Randall Stevens goes about town making withdrawals. And why would anybody question it? He's going overseas, so he needs a cashier's check. That's right. And the signature was a spot-on match. Oh, fucking red. And I kept thinking when I saw those scenes, I'm like, they're eventually going to catch on with all the books and everything that this Randall never existed. But then why couldn't he have created a third fake you know, life? And that's what he's living with in Mexico. He can be Andy Dufresne in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, I actually asked, and I was curious about this, uh, how did he, you know, how did he and how did Red get into Mexico so easily? Uh, and I guess I was told back then they didn't look at passports. They didn't look at ID. You just got on a bus and you were right into Mexico. Nobody cared. There was no even 
you know, border crossings, anything like that. I dug how the, uh, the prison collapses, uh, Norton's empire collapses that, you know, the state police show up and then he ends up shooting himself. And then we have, uh, Hadley being taken away. They said that he was sobbing like a baby. I, I very, very satisfying. Don't you kind of hope yeah. he ended up in Shawshank? And so, uh, red gets paroled. And he gets paroled by pretty much telling the parole board how he really feels. Yeah. You know, but I think what does it is when he says, uh, you know, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would say, don't fucking do it. You know what I mean? One crime, one bad mistake, and he's spent 30 plus years. Isn't he at 40 years now? Yeah. Yeah. In Shawshank. Right. So I think that's what does it. And then. I love his ending line, right? Uh, you go on and stamp your form there, Sonny. I don't give a shit. And as that's happening, so we have a medium shot of red, and then we have the parole board, and then a second shot of red. And it's on the fifth shot of red where he's saying that, and the camera is slowly pulling in on red's face. Yeah. One interesting thing, and maybe you can explain it from a director's point of view, Don, was when... Brooks was leaving the prison. The camera angle was at Brooks's back, kind of looking out, I believe, the prison. When Red was leaving the prison, it was the opposite shot looking into the prison. Other way. All right, was it, was it reversed? Yeah, well, we, get, yeah. we get the front shot of Brooks, and with, then he leaves. With the prison behind him. Right. Oh, with the prison behind him, okay. Because Brooks is institutionalized, and what's behind him is the prison, and that's what he's leaving, and that's what he wants he doesn't want to leave uh when red gets out we're in front of him so prison is behind him and his future is in front of him lovely haunting music that is being played and and it's the strings that as he's being released that is just so beautifully done yeah i was going to get into this in my review the the music definitely definitely could have been for a horror movie and definitely works as a drama, and it all just depends on which image you're looking at, but the music complements everything that we're looking at so well. The score is very well done here. And so uh, after Red is released, he, you know, as predicted, is having troubles on the outside, which is the whole reason why we got the Brooks story was mm-hmm. to make this payoff. Mm-hmm. And, and he's basically living Brooks's life outside the prison. In Brooks's room. Brooks was here. Yeah, I know. And then they deliberately show us uh, him walking by a pawn shop, and we, you know, browse shows by the guns. The guns mm-hmm. But then we stop on the compass, and we focus on the compass, so maybe there's hope. But at that moment, we're led to believe that he's going to shoot himself or kill himself, whatever. So or anyways, do something to get thrown back into prison. But ultimately what he does is he heads to Buxton because he made a promise to his friend Andy. And so uh, I like this bit when he finds the rock and then he finds the case. He looks around. You, you hear the birds and, and, the, and the field noise of the, bird, of the crickets or, or the bugs or whatever. Reassures that, you know, he's alone. Then he opens up the envelope or just peeks in the envelope and he does the same fucking thing. Like, are you fucking kidding me? I thought that, I thought and then that we was hear, funny. We hear the birds again and he, and then he does a, a quick little, you know, uh, uh, he does a quick little look around. Yeah. It kind of, you know, Julie and I were talking about as we we're watching the movie of, she's like, he's all alone. He walked there. Why is he looking around? And I'm like, 
It's probably something he learned in prison. Always watch over your shoulder and see who's coming up behind you. hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's the first thing I thought of, mm-hmm. you know, he's old habits, right? So anyways, he finds this letter and he says, um, if, which, if you've come this far, maybe you'd be willing to go a little further. And it's Andy asking him to go to say what to nail. And, uh, This is a great bit when he's reading the letter and Andy says, uh, do you remember the name? And then, oh my gosh, the first time I saw this in that theater, I'm like, I don't remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Did you remember the name the first time? Yeah. Did you, John? I remembered it, but I I still to this day, I don't think can pronounce it. I completely, oh man. Because, you know, Oh my gosh, it's a passing conversation. Are you going to, why would you remember that name? Well, I think he remembers it, A, because I at that moment when he's talking about it, it's not a passing conversation. Red thinks he's going to kill himself. So that, in Red's mind, well, is an important conversation he, to he's have. He's worried at that point. Right. He's But he thinks he's going to kill himself that night. But yeah. Right. Anyway, I was just thinking, I didn't remember that name. I'd be mm. so pissed. <laughs> oh, fuck, what was the name? Yeah, that's funny. Mitch, we'll see Red just traveling around Mexico trying to remember all the names. (laughs) Andy! Andy Dufresne! Um, So Red violates his parole, and he gets on a bus, and he goes to Andy, where Andy somehow miraculously looks even younger than he did when he went in. Freedom will do that. Freedom in the sun, I guess, you know. And... uh, Watching this movie, I thought that after Andy escapes and he's driving with the convertible and we get that shot when he's rounding the corner and the camera goes out to the ocean, I thought, oh, we should just end it there because we still have 15 minutes of this fucking movie. It's not until they're walking on the beach and the camera pulls out, you think, oh, that's why we have the other the other 14 minutes because it it's such a good payoff and it's such it's such an uplifting ending to a story we could have ended it with just andy but we ended it with a happy ending for andy and red and that totally pays off did you need that payoff because in the book uh, or in the story version it ends with basically red getting ready to cross the border into mexico to look for andy we don't get that payoff we just get that red has hope that you know the whole ending of the story is just Red's got hope, and, and where will hope lead him? Right, but when you're reading it after you end it, mm-hmm. your mind can go on and finish that for you. Cinematically, we want to be shown. You want to show. We him. we as an audience or we as moviegoers want to be shown. Did you get what the last word was in the movie? Mm-hmm. Hope. Probably. So again, just going along with the theme throughout the whole movie, they made sure that the last word was hope. All right, so that does conclude. The Shawshank Redemption. And, you know, it, it was really nice to see Andy and Red get their happily ever after. Happily ever after? You mean kind of like Frodo and Sam what do in did- Lord of the Rings? Oh, for fuck's sakes. <sighs> and now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. And Shawshank Redemption is no different. So to start with, let's look at Andy Dufresne. He is Frodo. He is the one of the main focuses of the journey, just like Frodo carries the light of the star of Endriel that Gladriel gives him. Andy carries hope with him that he attempts to help others 
other inmates on their journeys to fight back the darkness and the corruption. Sam, well, I'm going to go with Red on that. While the story often feels like it's as much about Red's journey as it is about Andy's, really, Red is the one who made Andy's escape possible. He's the one who supplied him with the rock hammer, the poster, and the friendship that kept Andy going. In many ways, he helped carry Andy along the way. Gandalf, well, I'm actually going to give that to Andy as well. His wisdom, advice, and teachings serve as a guide for many of the inmates who are also on their own journeys. So who is Aragorn? Andy is better suited to a Frodo and Gandalf type role versus being a leader. Red is more closer to being a leader that everyone tends to listen to. So if anyone showed Aragorn type qualities, I would also give that to Red. Sauron. In this story is Warden Norton. He enjoys the power he has over the inmates and the guards. He thinks of them all, or thinks of all of those around him as beneath him. He forces others to do his bidding. It's his eye that casts the corruption and doom all over the Middle Earth, which in this case is the Shawshank prison structure. As the whole world to those incarcerated within the walls, it is their whole world. That makes Captain Hadley his Urukai. The orcs he commands are just the other prison guards. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? Now, I know I mentioned that Shawshank's structure is Middle Earth, is kind of Mordor. Well, really, Shawshank prison is also what the presence that casts a shadow upon everybody else within. It's the institution itself that crushes all hope for the inmates within while boosting the power of those who preside over those inmates. The power contained within those walls, especially when abused, is crushing. After enough time within that corruption, inmates become institutionalized and unable to function without those walls. Just like Gollum needed his precious. So when Frodo was finally freed from the ring, you know, he was freed from that corruption. And it's the same when Andy escapes those walls and frees himself. So really, when I say the corruption, when I say the ring, all of that, it's the walls and it's the whole idea of that institution. That's my comparison between Shawshank Redemption and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. Well, I was curious. I thought that there could have been a Gimli or a Legolas in there. I was also thinking maybe Tommy could have been represented as somebody as well. And Haywood, I was sort of thinking that those could have been potentially one of those characters as well. I was also a little surprised that Boggs wasn't brought up. But, uh, you know, it's a shoe win to have Frodo and Sam and Sauron. See? See from the professor. Yeah, you, I mean... To Professor's point, you could have had them, but I agree with you. You didn't need them. I mean, obvious, right? Uh, I did like, however, the uh, ring comparison. Uh, Shawshank as an institution was the ring, and, you know, Gollum destroys the ring inadvertently, but frees uh, Frodo. Andy plops out of a fucking tunnel, which is kind of shaped like, a ring and 
he frees himself, right? So that was a good comparison. That one I liked. Everything else, C plus, my man. C plus for you. Thank you. And that was John's. Moment. All right. What do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this bitch? I'm ready to rate this bitch. How about you, John? I think we can do that, boss. Hey, Professor, how do we rate our movies? We rate our movies on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie where we think it's cinematic gold. It is something you're ready to watch anytime. A one fuck movie is pretty much one and done. You saw it and there's nothing you want to see about it, so you're never going to watch it again. A zero movie is the equivalent of John going up to the projection booth. (laughs) (laughs) Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, Shawshank, who wants to go first? I'll go. Five. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, short answer, Shawshank, it's it's a five-fuck movie. And the reason why it's a five-fuck movie is because you have excellent storytelling. The cinematography is beautiful. The music works and complements the scenes so wonderfully. Andy Dufresne, wonderful character. Red, love him. And I thought that, that Warden Norton wonderfully evil man he looks at you with a smile but he is as slimy as they come and i thought that that captain hadley excellent super villain and i thought that this story was a little long but i i love everything about this movie it is a fantastic watch five fucks all right five fucks from the professor do you want to go next or would you like me to go next uh let's flip a coin All right, you go. Okay. Shawshank Redemption is a story of friendship, hope, life, and overcoming adversity. It's about keeping hope alive in an environment that sucks the hope from anyone who enters. And it's a movie that actually inspires hope. It it makes you see that even in the darkest times, you can find hope. While not typically, or not your typical Stephen King type story, it's well written excellently cast and does an incredible job with its obvious message get busy living or get busy dying it's hard to believe that this was morgan freeman's first voiceover in a movie in my opinion he was one of the best parts of the movie along with tib robbins coming in a close second both do an amazing job conveying their friendship over almost 20 year span the movie succeeds where many others fail a drama that can keep the average viewer engaged. And its rewatchability is definitely there with all of the memorable dialogue. It's dialogue that you just think about, you know, later on, even after watching the movie. And again, I love a thinker movie. I love a movie that makes me think about different aspects and different things that I can see the next time I watch it. The only issue that I could find with this movie is that on occasions it had some unbelievable bits to it, like the fact that he could crawl through a shit pipe that had vapors in it that probably would have killed the average person, or the fact that it takes place in New England and nobody has New England accents. Those are just little tiny things that I think kind of bothered me a bit, but at no time did it even take me out of the movie. This, I would say, I wouldn't list it as one of my go-to movies, but if I catch it on, I'm going to watch it. It, I'm going to watch it all the way through, especially if there's nothing else diverting my attention and I have the time to watch it. I'm going to get me some Shawshank Redemption. 
So for those reasons, I'm giving Shawshank Redemption 4.75 fucks. 4.75 fucks from the comic book guy. All right, my turn. Shawshank, what can you say that we haven't already said? Brilliantly cast, brilliantly made. Uh, the score was amazing. The shots are beautiful. The story moves pretty well. I, I feel like it drags a little bit or it gets a little long in the tooth. But that's just the outcome of what the story is being told to you. So uh, Shawshank, I think, is one of those movies where it has such an uplifting message at the end that after sitting through all the shit you just sat through, or crawled through uh it's that moment of hope and that you know uh hope never dies and hope is a good thing it can also be a very bad thing but it's for the most part a good thing and i think that's a great message and the storytellers and uh frank debont stephen king they did a great job of portraying that cinematically uh nominated for seven academy awards didn't win any but hey it was an honor just to be nominated, right? For me, Shawshank isn't one of my go-tos. Uh, Shawshank, if it's on, uh, I might check to see what else is on. But that doesn't mean that I don't love this film, and I do. Morgan Freeman, uh, Tim Robbins, all of them. It's just, it's so well done. So for me, I am going to give The Shawshank Redemption 4.5 fucks. You're becoming pretty predictable. Yeah, well, I mean... So am I. All right, so with 4.5 fucks from me, 4.75 fucks from the comic book guy, and a perfect 5 fucks from the professor, that gives the Shawshank Redemption a average score of 4.75 fucks. And as you could probably guess, pretty high amongst our ratings. It is tied with Die Hard. But it is slightly worse than The Dark Knight, Ghostbusters, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And slightly better than John Wick 3, Pulp Fiction, and Goodfellas. I think that sounds about right because I think in order of things, I would definitely watch Ghostbusters and Dark Knight before I watch Shawshank. But I might want to watch Shawshank before I watch Pulp Fiction again. Yeah, I mean, kind of comes down to mood too. Yeah, you know what I mean? Pretty much. If you want to know which movie we are going to review next, be sure to check out the website and any social media platforms that we are on. Hey, uh, speaking of which, John, where can they find us? They can always find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we go ahead and post our podcasts, show notes, movie trivia, and whatever else we feel like sticking on that site. Uh, we can also You can also find us at any of these social media sites out there, as well as any place that hosts podcasts. All right. Sounds good. I just want to give a quick thanks to Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to throw out a shout out to Mr. Vega, who runs the Wrath of the Iothans podcast. Uh, you guys should check them out. That's a good listen to. And anyone else who listens to us, we appreciate it. And thank you. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, any of the ones that you can leave ratings, we'd love to get a high rating from you and just kind of boost our podcast up there. So give us some fives. All right. So for three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening.
sound hot? Yeah, you're hot. Little. Yeah. yeah. You guys ready? I was going to say originally disappointment. Why does it smell like disappointment? Well, because that's what comes out of your mouth every single fucking time. I don't even have to say it, do I? We're off to a good start. I know. Adaptations of all of his books. Adaptation. This is one of his favorite adapt- adaptations. This is one of his favorite adapt. Adi- I can't say adaptations. It. Adaptations. This is one of his favorite abit. This is one of his favorites adaptations. <laughs> I'm skip it. No, no, it's okay. I want you. I want you to nail it. Adaptations. Ad adaptations. Yes. This is one of his favorites. Uh, this is one of his favorite abit. Adaptation. <laughs> this is one of his favorite. This is one of his favorite. Ad- <laughs> Adapt. Norton begins exploding prison. Exploiting. That's what I fucking said. You said exploding. I did not. It's like you're new here. You don't even know what button to push. Ladies and gentlemen. Hey, man, it's me, Kevin John. Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the it's annoying. The annoying. Oops. <laughs> so, do you got a porn name for this one? Uh, the Shaw Skank Redemptions? That's exactly what I wrote down. Yeah, it's kind of a, threw me a softball there, bud. Yeah. Adaptation. Adaptation. Now say Legolas. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fuck off. Good night.